But you guys agree with me tonight over this sermon. I feel like it's important and significant. And I hope everybody can hear me. And some people might be soaking through this sermon. But Lord, I thank you that in this place, as people are hearing this that are out in the power, and, and those that are going to be hearing this live stream, those, those that are going to hear this through the internet or driving down the road, however people are hearing it. Lord, I just thank you right now. I pray, and everybody agree with me. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me and my wife powerfully tonight and enable us to minister under a fresh anointing and a greater anointing than what we've known. Um, Lord, I pray the glory would be awesome. And Lord, you'll speak through us tonight your truth. It'll be as light shining forth into any dark place to dispel any darkness, any lies of the enemy whatsoever. And Lord, that it will bring truth and revelation. Let your word go forth and convict where it needs to. Let your word go forth and wash where it needs to. The washing of the water of the word. Let it go out, Lord, as a hammer that breaks down the strongholds and the lies of the enemy that shatters these strongholds, that, that tears down deception. Lord, let it go as a sword that cuts away what needs to go out of our lives and a fire, Lord, that burns and consumes. Let your word go out as living seeds of truth sown into good fertile soil. Water by the Spirit of God that will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, we corporately bind any resistance of the enemy against the word. We bind it now. We bind the enemy's influence. We break his power and command it goes now in Jesus' name and will not hinder. And Father, I pray, Lord, as you speak through us tonight, let everything be accomplished through this time in the word that your will to be done. Lord, that you'll give my wife and I clarity and speak through us everything that you want to go forth. And we know, Lord, that your word does not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And I know, Lord, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, and there's power in testimony. So we thank you, Lord. We believe now. And, Lord, I pray that every person will get locked in and captivated by the anointing and the awesome power of the Holy Spirit. That as people hear this, there be a grace where the Holy Spirit anoints our eyes to see and ears to hear and captivates us and locks us in to where we're able to give the Lord our focus and get everything out of this, that it's God's will to be done. And there won't be any distractions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to share just for a moment here, but let me read a couple scriptures. This is one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible, I think. It's Philippians 2.21, and it says this, All seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Think about that. To me, this is probably one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible. Let me say it again. It's in the Bible, so it has to be true. It says, All seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Isn't that sad? In other words, people look out for number one. That's what the Bible's saying. And to me, that's really sad. I'm going to deal with deception and mixture tonight after my wife gives her testimony. But I'm going to talk about the death of me, the the death of self. Um, There's a deception and a mixture that has to do with the flesh that I'm going to be dealing with. But anyway, Matthew 16, 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
the denial of self, the taking up the cross as a death to self and follow the Lord. And it was perfect that Brother Zach taught on the life of Francis Asbury because last week that was the perfect timing for this. And that was not planned. This just all happened. It was the Holy Spirit. But his life was so sacrificial that he was willing to totally lay down his life for like 40 years and just ride on horseback to place to place where he talked to just handfuls of people. And But he changed an entire nation because of his faithfulness. And he was willing to die to self. He did nothing for, for uh, reputation or, or for money or for fame or anything like that. He just did it out of his love and devotion to the Lord. Philippians 3, 7 says this. Now, this is a powerful scripture. Whoever, whatever things were gain to me, the Apostle Paul says, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. It's Philippians 3, 7. Whatever things were gain to me, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may this is Philippians three ten, this is so powerful, that I may know him. That was Paul's heart cry. That I may know the Lord, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I might I might attain the resurrection of the dead. So let me just hit some bullet points here. That I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul actually wanted to share in Christ's sufferings. Number four, conform to his death in order to obtain the resurrection of the dead. Those are five things. Let me say it one more time before my wife comes here in a moment. That I may know him. That's the main thing. Know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, conformed to his death. Paul wanted to be conformed to Christ's death and obtain the resurrection of the dead. You cannot have the resurrection without there being a death. People want resurrection power, but they're not willing to die to self. And this sermon tonight, I believe, will be really convicting. If my wife can go ahead and come up here tonight, she's going to give her testimony to you guys. It's going to be really powerful. And I want her to take her liberty. Find a place where you guys can get really focused and hear from the Lord, okay? But Lord, I thank you for just speaking through her in power. In Jesus' name, we thank you for it. And the thing about her testimony is that the being willing to lose everything for Christ. You know, she had to be forsaken from her family. She had to go through a process of losing everything and starting over. But it's worth it in order to gain Christ. You understand? All right. Let's go ahead and take your liberty tonight. Well, there's people laying out all over the floor. This is awesome. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, I was raised in Southern California. My grandmother was into witchcraft. 
and she introduced my sisters and myself to witchcraft at a very early age in our life. She would give us incantation books and spell books, and we would uh, participate in seances and thought that it was all in good fun. We would get together with our friends in the neighborhood, and we would have seances and conjure up relatives that had passed on and so we thought it was all in good fun my parents um believed in the supernatural as well and in the in that we were watched over by guardians and so we had spirits living in our house and um i mean there was one time when i mean we were just raised with thinking that uh this particular spirit named coral would um, watch over us and she was our guardian and that she lived in a piece of old furniture that uh, my parents had acquired from um, her the woman's husband and then after she died he sold all of her stuff and we ended up with a favorite piece of piece of furniture and my sisters and I would try and talk to the spirit that lived in this piece of furniture and and um, it it was at a point where um, well, just a, a little story about how this spirit would, would take care of us is we were all sleeping one night and there was a fire in the kitchen and the, the kitchen curtains had caught on fire. And I got up because I kept hearing crashing. I got up and my sister and I ran to the kitchen and we saw um, cupboards that were opening up and dishes that were flying all over the kitchen and crashing up against the walls. Um, my mother and my dad got up and said, you know, do you see how, how this spirit is, is here to take care of us? She was doing everything she could to wake us up and let us know that there was a fire in the house. And so we put our faith and our trust in this spirit um, to take care of us. And we, we didn't know about the Bible. We were never introduced to the Bible or Jesus or anything else. And... Um, I remember when I was very young, I was between the age of 8 and 10, and I was having dreams, reoccurring dreams, um, after my my grandmother had given me this ring. It was a black, uh, like a black crystal ring that she had brought back from a different country. Um, She was getting kind of caught up in the voodoo thing um, because her and my, my grandfather were professors at Sacramento University. And so they would travel all over the world. And so she started adopting all of these different religions and started getting very heavily involved in voodoo. And she had brought me this black crystal ring back. And she gave it to me and gave my sisters each something, each of us something from this country. And when um, I remember the, after I put the ring on, I'd slept with it on. I kept it on all the time because that was sacred to me. My grandmother gave it to me and And so shortly after she gave me this ring, I started having dreams at night um, that turned into nightmares, and they were reoccurring dreams, and it was for a week straight, I would have this dream, and it happened the same time every night, and it was this dream of me living in a valley. I lived in the valley with my family and other people that I didn't know, and it was always dark there. And there was always a blackness. I don't ever remember it being light or day. But I remember that at, at night there would be um, these clouds would start hovering over 
and start descending on this valley. And as it descended on the valley, the earth would shake. And I remember running. Every time the earth would start shaking, I start. I would run to my house, and I would hide underneath this table. And and the enemy or something with the darkness would hover over the, the houses, and it would just pass by, and it always passed me by because I was hiding underneath the table in my house. This dream happened this say, every single night for a week straight. And I remember waking up crying, and I would look at the clock, and it was the same time every night. And then the very last night, on the seventh night that I had that dream, I remember the earth shaking, and I would do the same thing. It was the same sequence every single time, except this last night, I was running into my house, and I hid under the table, as as I did before, and I remember the earth shaking under me, and the house was completely lifted up. So I was, I was just sitting there, exposed to the enemy. And I was unprotected. And I remember being snatched up and I woke up. And that was the first time that this nightmare was different. And I never had that dream again after that. But certain things started happening in my life at that time. And I believe that had I known the Lord at that time, that he was trying to warn me of things to come in my life. Because shortly after that, a few years after that, actually, um, my dad had started getting really strange. He started acquiring all of this money quickly, and he would not tell anybody what he was involved in, and he started getting into, he had this statue that was half horse and half man. And I don't know where he got it, he would never tell us where he got it, but he worshipped this thing. He would sleep with it right beside him in the bed. He would take it wherever he went. And, and he started becoming really strange, and things started happening in our family. And he finally, um, I believe, had I, looking back at it now, I believe that because of the darkness that was, um, that was getting more and more intense in our family that he was involved in something other than witchcraft at this point. And um, he had introduced me to, to drugs for the first time. He was really into cocaine and, and all of these other hard drugs. And he introduced me to cocaine when I was very young. I was in my early teens. And... Um, he started getting into um, sexual rituals with me. I lost my virginity with my own dad when I was about 12 years old. Um, he started doing satanic sacrifices with me. And um, it, it was a very dark time. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it was way beyond the seances and the little dabbling in witchcraft and all of that. It, was a, it had gone a lot deeper at that point. And I was so addicted to these drugs, by the time I was 13 years old, I was a willing participant to do anything that I could to get these drugs, including having sex with whoever he wanted me to, participating in whatever satanic ritual he wanted me to do. And so through my teenage years, that's how my life was. And I would do anything for the drugs. And and that's exactly where he wanted me to be. I was to answer to him and nobody else. I was rebellious against teachers, against authority. 
Um, they could not tell me what to do. My dad was the only one that could tell me what to do. He was my daddy. And so I did what he told me to do. And I didn't have to listen to anybody but him. He totally controlled my life. He controlled the possessions that I got. He, he, he controlled every decision that I made in my life. And when, um, when I was about 17 years old, um, I decided I wanted out of that. And I didn't quite know how to do that. Um, the only way that I knew was to run away from home. I had run away from home several times and, and always came back home because I, I was scared. Uh, my sister at that time, she was a couple years older than me, and she was very rebellious, and she was getting into the street drugs by then and was started getting rebellious against my dad and started resisting him. And because she did that, my parents just had her put in a psychiatric home, hospital, and that's where she stayed. They, they did electric shock treatments on her, said she was bipolar, and she stayed there. And that's how he dealt with her, because she was rebelling against his authority. And so I ended, I ended up running away from home. I, I ended up in Washington State. Um, I lived on the streets. I did whatever I could. The only thing that I knew in my life is what was instilled in me when I was younger. So the sexual thing was very, very um, important in my life, and that was the only way that I knew to survive. So I got into prostitution. Um, I got into um, the street drugs at that time. I tried to cut off all ties with my dad. Of course, that didn't happen because he. I kept ended up ending up going back to him and calling him, and then he would contact people wherever I was at and provide me with the drugs that I was that I was um, addicted to at the time. And so I ended up getting married in that process. Um, my husband didn't know what I was uh, into at that time. He didn't know I was so heavily involved in drugs and all of that. And him and I had a son together. And we ended up moving to Texas. And his family lived here in Texas. And so shortly after we moved here, I was, uh, my dad had somehow found out where I was. I had, I had totally cut off communication with my whole family, my sisters, my mom, my dad, because I figured the farther I was away and the less communication I had with my family, the better off I would be. And maybe I could find my way out of this. Well, that didn't happen. Um, my dad kept tabs on me. He had uh, people that he knew in Texas. He had people he knew in Washington. They would come and they would show up at my door. They would offer me the drugs. And so there I was. It was like this vicious cycle just over and over. And I didn't know how to get out. And my dad was always there to make sure that I wouldn't get out of that lifestyle. And so when my husband and I had a son... Um, he ended up, um, we ended up getting divorced because of my addiction. And he uh, took me to court and I lost custody of my son. I tried to cover up my lifestyle um, and have my son come and live with me. But, but at that time, I was living in my car. The back seat of my car was my son's bed and I slept in the front seat. I had a part-time job at a convenience store. And would sleep in my car, and then the night shift would get off work, and they'd wake me up, and I'd go in and put my son in the back in the storeroom while I worked. And so I tried to put on the act that, yes, I was fine. I can take care of this boy. I have a job, you know, and 
So the authorities caught up with me after a short time, and I ended up losing total custody of my son. My husband took my son and moved to California. And so here I was again in Texas. I didn't know anybody. Um, I resorted back to prostitution and doing the only thing I really knew to survive at that time. And, of course, called my dad, and he got back into the picture, and and that vicious cycle just continued on and on. And I ended up meeting someone else and married him. Him and I had our daughter, and um, we moved back to... um, so we moved to Washington State, actually, because by then I was talking to my sisters then, and my sister had just recently got out of the psychiatric hospital, and I knew that she needed my help, and so um, we moved back there, and shortly after we moved there, my second husband and I got divorced, and I kept custody of Brianna this time because I moved in with my sister, so I had a place to live and, and a way to take care of her. I had a job. and Well, when my sister and I moved in with each other, it was... The spiritual darkness in our lives had gotten so much deeper and on a level that I wasn't familiar with. Um, it was total darkness. It wasn't just dabbling with this, these spirits and, and, you know, doing spells and incantations and all that. I was still very addicted to the drugs at the time. My sister was just getting out of the hospital where she was addicted to all of these medications that she'd been on for years. And um, all of the electric shock treatment, she was trying to recover from that. And so we moved in together. And during that time, um, we got engulfed in darkness. And it was like two, two dark forces coming together just intensified the level of spiritual warfare and, and the supernatural in our lives. And... Brianna, at the time, she was like a year and a half. She was really brought into a situation that um, I knew it was affecting her life, and I didn't know how to get her out of it because I didn't know how to get out of it myself. And I remember I I became a a dancer, a a stripper at a place, um, and so I would drop Brianna off at... at, um, the sitter and I would be out all night doing that and trying to hold down a job and and what have you and and uh, I remember getting ready one night to go to work and I was listening to ACDC on the radio and as I was putting my makeup on and listening to the radio I started hearing the music fade out it was fading out and as it faded out I started hearing what the Bible calls. I mean, this is the only way I can associate it now, knowing the Bible. But it sounded like weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was horrible. I mean, it was un- it was ungodly, um, just screaming and and torture. People being tortured, and I mean, I I was freaked out. I mean, I was familiar with the demonic. I was familiar with demons, but not on this level. At this point, it was not on this level. And I knew that I was going deeper and deeper in a downward spiral into darkness. And I didn't know. It scared me. And so I remember getting up and I took the the stereo and I threw it down on the ground. And I told my sister about it. 
And she just like, oh, you're crazy. You were just high at that time. You were just high. It just seemed like that's that's what, what it sounded like. And so at that point, when Brianna was little, I had gotten, um, the day before that, I had bought this little tape recorder because I wanted to tape Brianna's talking and her first words and all of that, and I wanted to keep that. And so I was taping her her talking and babbling and <laughs> She hasn't stopped since. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but um, anyway, so, and I remember after I recorded that, I took the tape out, and, um, and then I wanted, I wanted to play it for my sister. And so when she got home from work, I put it back in. And, and I mean, this is a new tape recorder, a brand new tape. It wasn't owned by anybody else before that. And when I put the tape in, it wasn't Brianna's words. It was the same sound that I heard on that on the radio when I was listening to ACDC. It was de- the demonic torture of people and babies crying and people weeping. And just, it was horrible. It was it was a demonic sound is what it was. And my sister took it and she said, you get that out of my house. And I said, this is, what I, this is what I told you I heard. And she said, you get that and you get yourself out of my house. And I didn't know where to go. So I, I knew I needed to get rid of this thing. So I took it and I went to my drug dealer's house. And I told her, you have to listen to this. You tell me if you hear the same thing that I'm hearing. And when I let her listen to it, she was really stoked about it. She's like, this is so awesome. She said, I'm going to put this on my answering machine, on my recorder. And I went, I said, no, I said, you, you don't, this is, I don't want you to have this. This is not what you want. I said, we need to destroy this. No, she said, I want it. And so I went into the restroom before I was leaving and she had put that into her recorder and when I came out, this woman was laying on the floor, and her eyes were rolling back in her head. There was blood coming out of her mouth, and she was making those same sounds that that recording was saying. And this, this was coming out of her mouth. And it was the same exact noise that that tape was making. And I took that tape out of her recorder, and I went back home and I took a hammer and I destroyed it. And I realized, even not knowing, not knowing how this could spread, I knew that this was something demonic and that I could not pass it on to other people. And so I destroyed it. And I remember laying in bed that night, and as I laid in bed, I, I was hopeless. I mean, I, I didn't know what to do. I had done everything in my power to escape this life. And as I lay there, I remember that I saw this black figure come to the end of my bed. He walked in my room and came to the end of my bed and kind of bumped my bed. So I sat up and I looked at it. At first, I thought it was a dream. And then it was a silhouette of a black hooded figure. And he said, it's time. And I sat up and I said, it's time. And he kept saying, it's time, over and over again. And I said, it's time for what? And he he said, it's time now to start teaching your daughter the same thing that your grandmother passed on to you. And I knew at that moment that I was in something I didn't know how to get out of. And it was this gener- it was a generational thing that was supposed to be, pa- that was passed on from my grandmother 
and who was passed on to her from whoever. And then it was passed on to me and my sisters, and we were supposed to pass it on to our children. And this was supposed to continue. If the enemy would have his way, this would continue from generation to generation. And I knew at that moment that there was nothing. I, I was completely out of control of this situation. And the very next day, I thought, this is the only way out. I'm going to take my life. I'm just going to kill myself. Brianna would be better off in a foster home. She'd be better off with a family who could take care of her and possibly protect her. Because I couldn't even protect myself at this point. I was, I was helpless and I was hopeless. And so I went and I took her to the sitter. I put a little note in her backpack to tell the sitter what was going on and that I was not going to be there to pick her up. And I went out to a a remote area and had a razor blade. I was ready to slit my wrist and take my life and sit there and bleed to death. And as I drove out to this area and I just started crying because this is not how I wanted it. And I cried and I cried and I leaned my seat back. And as I leaned my seat back, both my arms fell to the side. And I remember sticking my arm in between the, my seat and the console. And I felt something down on the side of my seat. And I picked it up and it was a New Testament Gideon Bible. I don't know where this Bible came from. I still to this day don't know where this Bible came from. I got my car from my drug dealer. And I know she wasn't saved. And so I sat there, and the minute that I opened that Bible, I felt something in my heart change. I don't know. I can't explain it. I just know that somebody, the Holy Spirit I know now, was with me in that place. And as I looked through the Bible, I went turned to the back of the Bible, and there was a sinner's prayer printed out on the back. And I said the sinner's prayer, and I gave my heart to Jesus. Right there in the front seat of my car. It wasn't in a church. It wasn't around Christians. I didn't even know Christians. But God knew exactly where I was. He knew where I was, and he knew what I needed. And so I gave my life to Jesus right there. And I went back, and I picked up my daughter. And luckily, the sitter hadn't even opened her backpack. (laughs) So she didn't know anything that was going on. But I picked up my daughter. And that night, um, I laid Brianna down to go to sleep and was sitting out in the living room. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know to go to church. I didn't know to be around Christians. That's all I knew was that sinner's prayer. And I kept saying it over and over and over. God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart. That's the only thing I knew. And that's the only thing that brought me peace at that moment. And so I kept saying it over and over. And as I was sitting there watching TV, I heard Brianna screaming. And I got up and I ran into her room and I flipped the light on. And her ceiling fan was spinning so fast in, in, her, in the ceiling that I thought it was literally going to drop down. Her toys were flying across the room and she was standing up in her crib screaming, Mommy, they're biting me. They're biting me. And I literally saw teeth marks on her arms. And I knew that the enemy was not happy. And he was not going to let me go that easy. I knew at that moment the warfare that I was was to face. 
because I gave my Lord, my life to Jesus Christ. I didn't know how to deal with it, but I really did. My eyes were open at that moment, and I knew what was going on. And I picked her up, and we huddled in the, in the corner of my apartment, and I rocked her to sleep reciting the sinner's prayer all night long, all night long, until she fell asleep in my arms. And the very next day, I had called my first husband's dad, who lived here in Texas, and he had been a preacher before my before we had gotten married. And uh, he had been a preacher, and then he backslid. And um, so I called him the very next day, and I told him what was going on and asked him, how, am I, how do I deal with this? And he said, Sandy, he said, I had no idea what you were involved in. I knew that you would stay far from me, and you didn't really get close to anybody when you were here and married to my son. He said, but... I want to tell you that I've come back to the Lord and I've started a church in my home here in Texas. And um, I really wish that you would come and bring your daughter and be surrounded by godly people and get into a good church and, and let us mentor and disciple you. And he said, this is a battle that the enemy is not going to just let you go because according to him, you are his. And your parents, your dad, or whoever it was, gave you to to Satan when you were little. And you can't fight this battle on your own. He said, I can pray for you, and the Holy Spirit will be with you, and God will keep you. But I wish you would come here. And so he paid for my daughter and I to go and live with him and his wife in their home. And I slept in church because that's where they had their church. I was sleeping in the glory day after day after day and that's where God wanted me and I the only thing that I brought with me I had this little bitty suitcase and I took I had Brianna's a few clothes of hers a couple pairs of shoes one toy and that's all I could take with me and I left the next day I left my car in Washington I left all my possessions I left everything I didn't look back I took up my cross I had Jesus in my heart, and he's the only thing that I needed. I never went back. I don't know what happened to it. I don't care. I didn't care, and I don't care now. And God has brought me leaps and bounds, and I, I, had, I, I ended up marrying um, a, a man that, um, that was a Christian. I mean, he was the first man that I met that was a Christian shortly after I um, moved to Texas. And um, we were married for 12 years, and he had open doors, I found out, after 12 years of marriage and raising Brianna and her brother. Um, I found out after 12 years of marriage that he had open doors in his life to the enemy, and um, he had an issue with um, molesting little girls. After 12 years, and I thought I was safe. I thought that I was safe because he was a Christian man. He was a children's pastor. For 12 years, he pastored children. And, you know, I knew at that moment that even though I was saved and that God loved me and by his grace, I was delivered from, my li- from that lifestyle, I realized that there were doors still in my life that needed to be dealt with. 
And there were obviously doors in his life that needed to be dealt with. And I was totally crushed to find out that my Christian husband would fall into that trap. So we picked up the pieces and moved on, and God brought a healing to our life once again. He's healed us. He's redefined us. And he's brought an awesome, godly man in my life that leads me every single day in the ways of the Lord. And I pray the same thing for my daughter. And you know what? One thing that I can say through all of this is the devil has nothing on me now. He has nothing on me. And I'll tell you what, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that generational chain and that bondage that the enemy planned for my life and then brought another man in to start that same cycle with my daughter has been broke. It has been broke off of our life. And from that point on, when I gave my life to Jesus, I, I believe in my heart that my descendants from this point on are taking a turn towards Jesus. They no longer have to fall into that vicious cycle. They no longer have to live in bondage and be raised in the, the way that I was. Brianna is the first person in our whole family as far as our children that has been raised in church and is living for the Lord with all of her heart. She doesn't know the demonic that I lived in. She doesn't know everything that my family has lived in. That She hasn't had to live through that because I chose to pick up, every, pick up my cross, to lose my life, to lose everything that this world and the enemy can offer me so that her life could be different. And yeah, it's been hard. And yes, we still do go through battles. And a lot. sometimes the enemy just tries one more punch. But you know what? We're strong enough now that we hit him back. We hit him back with everything that we have. And we are victorious. And we don't have to live in that bondage and live through that vicious cycle anymore. In Jesus' name, thank you. Amen. flesh tonight, the mixture. As my wife talked about, you have to lay down your life to follow Jesus. The Bible says that if you will lose your life, you'll find true life. Doesn't it? If you'll lose your life, you'll find true life. And I want to pick up from where she left off and just talk about the deception and the mixture that has to do with the flesh in church. Because you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of flesh still in the church, in there? As I go through this, I believe this will be kind of a convicting sermon, but I'm, I'm hungry and desperate to go deeper in the Lord, and I know many of you are. Yeah, and my, my wife, just to kind of pick up, she, uh, I, I had no idea God was going to 
bring us together. You know, I I knew who she was, but um, there was a, a really godly pastor that was for about ten years was was her pastor, and really was the one that water baptized her and and discipled her in Christ. And I'm not talking about Chalmer, which was the the dad. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about another pastor, and. She had said under this pastor's ministry for a long time, and he was really the one that was instrumental in bringing us together. He really felt it was a God thing. But he told me he felt, though, that as as God brought us together, it was a divine connection, but he felt that the devil's kingdom would not be happy about that. And he warned me, he said he felt in his spirit, and he was a very prophetic man, he felt in his spirit there would be some spiritual warfare surrounding that because the enemy didn't want us to come together. But we still, it still worked out. We still got the victory. And uh, God's really bringing forth a ministry, her and I together, and it's been really powerful. All right, so praise God for that. Um, let me read to you about Galatians five sixteen through 23, where it talks about the flesh and the spirit. What you guys got to understand, and I'm going to do just a little smaller sermon tonight and just kind of dovetail off what she talked about but your your spirit soul and body each one of you are created in the image of god god's three but he's one father son and spirit but listen you are a body a soul and a spirit and i want y'all to really look this way and listen to me because you need to know this your spirit man your inner man is the part of you that's born again when you accept jesus christ That's why Jesus said that your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Because your spirit, deep down in you, your spirit, man, is when you become a Christian, that's where the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's the part of you that's alive. The life of Christ lives there. The Bible calls it the seed of God or the lamp of the Lord. All that is within you, deep down in you. And this is not a good example, but people would say, well, what's what's your spirit, man? Again, this is not a good example, but it's the only one I can think of. And I've tried to think of a lot of them. If, you know, you talk about like somebody said they saw a ghost or something like an apparition. <laughs> All right. Your spirit man is a spirit. It's not physical. It's a spirit. It's it's who you are deep down on the inside. And when you die, your spirit will leave your body. And that spirit man is, is like a ghost, so to speak. It's a spirit. Does that make sense? Not the best example, but I think I get the point across. All right, then you have your physical human body. Don't have to talk a lot about that, okay? But your flesh. Your flesh communicates through what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you touch, okay? That's your flesh. And your flesh part of you, okay, as you pinch yourself, your flesh, that's the part of you where the sinful nature lives. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned with their physical body. They ate something they were not supposed to eat it went down into their belly and because of that their flesh okay sin moved into their flesh into their dna and they've passed that on to you and i that's called the sin nature and so your flesh does not desire the things of god your flesh desires the things that are sinful but when you become a christian your spirit The Holy Spirit lives in your spirit, and deep down, your spirit is hungry for the things of God. And so from the time you become a Christian, now you've got this battle going on 
where there's a part of you that loves the things of God, but there's also a part of you that loves sin. And you're at war with this within yourself. And I'm going to talk to you just briefly about this, but we've got to learn how to die to the flesh. That's a huge part of your Christian life. And it's very, it's very critical that you learn how to do this because when I was young in the Lord, I did not have, and I'm not going to get into my testimony, but I did not have mentoring that I needed. I did not know what that meant. Somebody says, well, you need to die to the flesh. Okay, well, what does that mean? I mean, how do you actually do that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I did not have the mentoring. People just say these little cliches and think that baby Christians just get it. They, you don't just understand something like that. The way you die to the flesh is, is, is you get in prayer, and as you seek God in prayer, your flesh is dying, so to speak, and your spirit man is, is becoming strong. And what's happening is, is that sinful part of you is being brought into subjection. But I'm telling you, about 90% of dying to the flesh has to do with your prayer life. Maybe some fasting. Okay, fasting will help you die to the flesh too, amen? But, but, it's, but you're not going to fast every day. It, it has to do with your prayer life. Because as you seek God in prayer, and you discipline yourself in prayer, your flesh is being brought down under subjection, and your spirit man is now like the king and you're, you're basically putting your foot on the neck of the flesh and saying, you're going to submit to what I'm telling you to do. And your spirit man is walking in, in authority. You're walking in the spirit. That's why the Bible says you can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it's conquered in prayer. You know why so many Christians are defeated? Because they don't pray. I'm just telling you. That's, I asked Steve Hill one time. Um, you know, just, I've been thinking about him since he passed on to be with the Lord. And thinking about my time with him but he told me i said well what have you learned about prayer and this is what he said it's kind of funny but he wasn't trying to be funny i don't think he said well a lot of people talk about it not too many people do it ain't that the truth and you wonder why there's so much flesh in the church so i'm not going to get too much into renewing the mind per se but you're we have got to get to a place as christians where we are crucified with Christ, it's not us who live. But it's a daily thing. You can be dead to the flesh yesterday, and your flesh can really be strong today. I mean, you've got to put this thing under daily. The Bible says, I die daily, and it's, it's conquered in prayer. So I challenge you to learn how to pray and die to that flesh every day and walk in the Spirit. So let me give you this in Galatians. It says this, but I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Everybody say, walk in the Spirit. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. There's this battle. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Listen to this. Immorality. That's sexual. That's like looking with lust. Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Isn't it interesting that idolatry is flesh? Because your flesh tries to make idols out of everything. You know what I'm saying? To your flesh, everything else is more important than God. Y'all hearing me? Witchcraft. 
is considered a work of the flesh because it has to do with controlling other people. Enmity. Enmity means hatred. Strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions. This, I've been in church for a while. How many of you guys have been in church very long? How many of you guys have seen in church? Let's go through it. Strife. Jealousy. Outburst of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. And there's unfortunately drunkenness in some churches too. Carousing. Listen, the Bible says, listen to this, verse 21. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That should put the fear of God in people. Did y'all hear me? Those that live that type of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. You would think that that would put the fear of God. But the way that that Satan has deceived people is by this hyper-grace message which tells people you're fine just like you are. And then people think that they are, but they're not. Did you know I met this guy that this happened to? This is a story that's kind of famous and has circulated over the, the years, you know. But I met the guy that had this experience and I sat down to talk to him myself. He said that he grew up in a preacher's home and was a heathen. Man, he backslid, was away from God. And he said that he came to Jesus later on in life and really gave his life to the Lord. It was real sincere, and he wanted to repent and change. And he knew that God had called him into the ministry, so he was really going to give his life to the ministry. And he was praying. I believe he was fasting, if I remember right. And he was really seeking God about his ministry, about his calling. And he said that he had an open vision that scared him half to death. And he said that he was praying and he said it opened up underneath him and he saw hell. And some of you may have heard this story because there's a lot of, this has been told a lot. Anyway, he said he saw hell and in hell there was these pits of fire everywhere. And people, there was like these dugout pits and and it was just totally on fire. And there were people in each pit burning alive, but they wouldn't die. And they were screaming, they were in a lot of pain. There was this one guy that he said he had never seen that much hate and anger on somebody's face in in his life. And this guy was going from pit to pit, and he would reach down in there and grab the person in the pit and turn them so he could see their face, throw them back in there, and he was going from pit to pit. And he's watching this thing, and it's scaring him half to death. And he asked the Lord, he said, Lord, what is going on? And the Lord told him, said, that man is looking for the preacher that told him, that he could live in sin and still go to heaven. And then the Lord told him, he said, you do not be that preacher. I would hate to be the preacher that told people that. Because you're going to stand before Jesus one day. Don't you dare tell people that it's okay to just live in sin, you're fine like you are. No, that is an affront to the cross. Why did Jesus die in the first place? What, for preachers to go around telling people it's okay to live in sin? The reason Jesus came was so that people could be forgiven and turn from their sin and quit living in sin. He came to resolve the issue of sin. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, it says that he bore in his body our sin. What, that we can die to sin and live a righteous life, okay? So anyway, we've got to learn how to die to the flesh. And then also, 
Um, verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I must stay with self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those that belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and all of its desires. How many of you guys can say in your life that your flesh has had some passions and some desires that were just not right with God? All right. That's everybody, friend. But listen, whenever we get saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us and he empowers us and helps us to die to the old man and the old flesh and live a pure life. I know you guys want revival and I really believe that you do. And that's why I'm preaching like this. Because we have got to die to the flesh and not let it creep into the church. I'm concerned with how much flesh I see in the church. It grieves me. Let me give you some examples of flesh in the church. People that think worship time is entertainment time. I didn't realize how bad it was till I got on a worship team. But man, you're out there watching sometimes people that are just sitting there just staring at you. And I'm sitting there thinking they can't even worship God for five minutes. That's the flesh. Their flesh don't want to worship God. And so they're just sitting there like, like they're watching TV. It's entertain me. And then a lot of times those same people will make fun of or criticize people that are worshiping God. Steve Hill coined this um, description of a radical because, you know, some people will look at those that are really dancing and worshiping and free and they'll think, oh, they're so radical. I don't think that's radical. I think that's normal. But Steve Hill said this. He said, you know what? He said, you know what a radical is? It's somebody that's just closer to Jesus than you. But I'm grieved at the flesh of people thinking church is entertainment. It's just entertain me. Give me, 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 what I want. That's flesh. You know, we should be coming in here to really worship the King of Kings and just give him our all. Seriously. The flesh. The selfishness of actually thinking church is about me. You know how many people out there across the board, I'm telling you, all across this nation that think church is just about me. It's just about what I can get out of it. It's me, me, me. That's the flesh. Church is not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. Amen? And I I know doing the church plant, you know, you see a lot of things that maybe people that don't do church plants don't see. And I mean, you guys are great, but I've seen a lot of people over the years that when there's any type of sacrifice involved, they run the other way. They do not want to roll up their sleeves and do anything for Jesus at all. They only want what they can get out of it. They don't want to give anything. How about the selfish big babies that sit and pout in church because they don't get it their way? Maybe the carpet ended up being a different color than they wanted. There's a picture hung up. You know, that wasn't the one they picked out. Um, There's so-and-so is sitting in their pew, whatever. And they're just, they're 40, 50-year-old big crybabies. That's the flesh. I need like a crying baby track just to be going through. Those those people are just a bunch of big babies. 
And really, quite honestly, let's just tell like it is. It's embarrassing because the world sees that type of childishness. It, it, it's, an, it's an embarrassment. What about the extreme sensitive people that are easily offended and only want to hear upbeat, positive messages and they never want to be convicted and they don't want their stuff dealt with? What about that? That's the flesh. You know what that thing is whenever you get up to go pray and you really just don't feel like it? You know what that is? That's your flesh. You got to kill that thing. What about the lack of willingness to sacrifice at all for the kingdom? How many people project their issues toward their leaders? They, they, they have issues and they take it out on their leaders. That's the flesh. What about all the dysfunction and fighting and the rebellion that's in church? What about the politics and the money decisions made about money? That's the flesh. What about all the gossip? Now listen, I need y'all to understand this. I've preached this before, but there's people that are new that have never heard this. I'm going to tell you, y'all have got to be ready for this and be ready to stand with me with this. And I'm not directing this at anybody that's physically here at all. But as as we get into our own place and new people are coming, um, I'm going to tell you that that's one thing I'm not going to deal with. And There's people that know me. I won't deal with a, a divisive, troublemaker person. I won't. I have... I have very little tolerance. If they're gossiping and they're trying to pit Christians against each other, they're making little phone calls and trying to turn people against me or my wife or Brother Zach or some elder or something, they're trying to cause division in the body. My patience level is is very, very small with that stuff. And I will call them and I'll be Christ-like and talk to them and tell them, but if they don't repent, um, I I will do what the Bible says. Okay? And you, the Bible clearly says to get rid of those type people. And um, I've had some confrontations. And you're in revival today, right now, because I have dealt with stuff. If I would have let certain people control me and tear up this church, this church probably wouldn't even exist today. I'm just telling you. That's how bad certain people have been that have, the Satan's tried to send through. But let me, let me just say this, because I need your support as a pastor if people come in here that, that are the hell raisers type, okay, they want to come in, they want to rebel against leaders, they want to turn relationships and destroy a church and their gossips and stuff, a good pastor will go to them and straighten them out. And if they don't repent, they'll take witnesses, you know, and deal with them. And if they still won't repent, they'll oust them. There was a, a great revival. This is the best example, although I could give a lot. A great revival that took place where there was hundreds of thousands of people that were saved in this move of God. Right before this move of God happened, this is a true story, and I heard it from the pastor and from the evangelist that was there both. And the evangelist, I knew him personally. He told this story. The evangelist said he went to speak for this pastor. And this was a Sunday morning. There was a lot of people there. And this pastor leaned over to the evangelist and told him, said, listen, man, i got to deal with something before you preach. The evangelist like, ah, that's, that's fine. He's thinking, you know, some announcement or something. Anyway, the pastor gets up there and, and leans, leans on the podium and says, I'm just making up a name, but he said, Bob, I want you and your family to stand up. Now, this is fun to everybody. And the pastor told him, he said, Bob, listen, man. He said, I've gone to you in private, 
and I've, I've taken witnesses. You guys have been gossips. You've been trying to tear up this church. You've slandered. You've pitted people against each other. You've done all these things. I went to you. I tried to talk to you. I took witnesses. We tried to talk to you. You would not listen. You have not repented. And he said, from this day forward, you are not a member of this church. You are not even welcome to come to this church again. I want you to pick up your stuff and go out the back door and don't come back. And he said, "Um, ushers, get them out. Well, the evangelist was sitting there. And the evangelist said, he's just sitting there watching this. And he said it was so biblical. He said he was seeing the Bible, but also he said it was like you could feel in the atmosphere like this black cloud lift off the church and it went out the back door with them. And that church later on saw a major significant move of God where hundreds of thousands gave their lives to Christ that would not have happened if that pastor would have put up with that garbage in that church. That's the flesh. You can call prayer meetings. You won't see too many people. You can have a church barbecue and people will travel land and sea. People hoard wealth because they don't want to give into the kingdom. Listen, this is just dealing with the flesh. I'm just being serious. Let me tell you what, what the spirit, those that are walking in the spirit will say, you know what? It's not about me. I'm just here to worship the king. I'm here to serve the king. If that means I set up a chair, that means I catch, that means I scrub a toilet, if that means I witness to somebody, if that means I play an instrument, if that means I help with the sound booth, I'm here because I love Jesus and I just want to serve where he wants me to serve. It's not about me. It's about him. That's the spirit. Now, when you get the flesh, the flesh sits back and goes, this is all about me. Everybody should be looking at me and patting me on the back and praising my greatness. And this should all be about me, what I want, when I want it, the way I want it. That's the flesh. And unfortunately, you see a lot of flesh, don't you? So tonight, I'm going to give you a couple more things, but I want you to pray about that tonight. I really feel in my heart that we're on the cusp of something, man, in the spirit. I can just feel it. And... I don't know about you, but I want everything Jesus has for me. And that means that I've got to die completely down. And that there's none of me left. I pray that that happened, Lord. There's none of me. just totally dead to self. And Jesus, you live your life. But that means that we've got to humble ourselves down to the ground and let him burn out of us everything that needs to go. Let him burn it all out. All that selfishness, all that pride, all that rebellion, anything and everything that's not his kingdom, let him clean us up. So that he can really use us. Because you can't have resurrected power if you're full of the flesh. Resurrection power comes when you're dead to the flesh. You die first, then resurrection power starts flowing. And um, I remember David Hogan, my goodness, when he prayed for me. But I'm going to tell you, you know why David's walking in authority and power? Because he died a long time ago. You know why Catherine Coleman walked into what she did? Because Catherine Coleman said this. She said, I can take you to the street I can take you to the street sign. I can take you there right now in my car, drive you there, and I can show you where Catherine Coleman died. She said, I died that day. I gave my life to Christ fully. I died there, and I surrendered everything to him. That's why she walked in the power that she did. 
Is this making sense to anybody? That all of a sudden my dreams, my ambitions, what I want, me, 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 it's all laid down on the altar and say, Lord, none of me. What do you want with my life? What do you want to do with me? How can I be crucified with Christ that you can live your life through me? So I want us here in a moment, I want us to pray about these things. Because for us to really go into everything Jesus has for us, this message flies in the face of, of some of the stuff going on in the body of Christ right now. Because it's, in the body of Christ, a lot of the sermons now actually feed the flesh. And they're empowering the flesh. They're actually doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. I grew up around where you went down in the altar and you got right, man. Amen? What happened to that? Where, where sermons were preached and people in a good way, because the Holy Spirit loves us and he, he sees that none of us are perfect and he convicts us and he wants us to be more like Jesus. And, and so the preaching of the word goes out and the Holy Spirit's convicting people and there's tears and they, they feel the grief of the Holy Ghost and, and they feel the, the godly sorrow come on them and then they want to go down and they want to deal with it. They want to get right with God. What happened to that? It was said about Charles Finney when he would preach, there was such conviction and such power. He would get alone with God, and he'd come out in such power that one writer described it like this. He said it was like you had a whole bunch of eggs, and you took a bowling ball and just threw it through the eggs. They said his words had so much power that you could feel those words just, just explode in you, and the conviction that came with them. People in Finney's meetings would fall on the ground in a fetal position and not be able to move. Why? It wasn't because they're being blessed. These were heathen. They felt so convicted by the Holy Ghost, they were laying on the ground in a fetal position just groaning. And somebody had to come pick them up and drag them down to the altar. And then Finney would lead them all to Jesus. That's how convicting, anyway. That God do it again, Lord. Do it again. Let that type of conviction come where people are gripped with the fear of God and it's real. I'm going to move real quick through Chrislam because I think you guys have more sense than this. But listen, we can't mix Christianity and other religions. Amen? Okay, Chrislam, what, what Islam is, it's a different religion. It's a different God. The Bible says that Allah, um, it says that idolatry is actually the worship of demons. So when, you're, when somebody's worshiping Allah, the Bible says they're worshiping a demon. Okay, this is not the God of the Bible. So don't allow any type of a mixture what Allah is, Allah was the moon god that was in Mecca. There was a bunch of different idols there. He was the little moon god. Well, Muhammad had some angel of light appear to him in a cave and tell him that Allah was the one true God and give him the Quran. So he comes out of there and kicks over the other idols, and he's demanding now that everybody worship Allah, and if they don't, him and his little army would kill you. That's what Islam is. That's how it started. So anyway... Don't start mixing other religions. There's a lot of deception in these last days, and we cannot try to blend Christianity. And I'm concerned because of the flesh. And people are thinking, man, you know, if we can just make Christianity appealing to people. That's not birthing true converts. The Holy Spirit has to convict people, and they, they've got to come to a realization that they're a sinner that needs a Savior. Not that Christianity is somehow made into an image of what's going to appeal to their flesh. And this is the last thing, is the lack of true biblical discernment. Please give me your best ear. We have got to have real discernment. 
okay? You know what people look at because it's the flesh? They look at things like this. They'll look at something and they'll say, well, the numbers are there. And there's so many people involved. Surely everything's fine. You see what I'm saying? They'll go to an event. They'll go to a location, whether it's a church ministry, an event, crusade, whatever it is. I'm not picking on anything. But they'll go, and because there's so many people involved, they'll think, well, there's so many people, so everything must be fine. That's not true discernment. Because it could very well be fine, but it could also not be. You can't base it on that. That's not true discernment. And the Bible specifically says not to follow a crowd to do evil. So if a crowd is involved in something that's not right, you're not supposed to be just blindly following the crowd. I saw this picture when Hitler was coming to power and everybody there in the crowd was mesmerized by Hitler and they were all doing their... And there was this one guy, this is a true... This one guy was just standing there like this. And they had him circled, and they said, you be that guy. Let me tell you, just because, listen, just because everybody else is blindly following along something, doesn't mean that it's okay. I mean, you understand, in Hitler's day, going along with his agenda seemed like the right thing to do. And he was claiming to be a Christian, and there was large crowds, but was everything okay? I'm just making a point. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that people will rally You know what grieved me? And you guys take note of this. This happened. It wasn't that long ago. If one of you guys remember the year, tell me the year. But there was a a Democratic convention. And God was brought up. And the whole group, there was thousands of people there at this event. And they were booing God. That's the Democrats in our nation. They were booing God. You guys remember what year this was? Because I saw it. It was the last convention, 2012 or so, something like that. Listen, man, you don't follow a crowd. If I was there, I'd have left. Let me tell you, man, that, so just because there's big numbers and things, that's not something to look at and go, well, everything must be fine. There's so many people involved. Listen, don't go with that. Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they'll both fall into a ditch. And hopefully you guys watch that stuff I've been posting. But people also look at what appears successful outwardly, like the size of buildings, financial status. But it doesn't mean it's okay. I know, for example, that there's certain preachers that can really get up, man, and the way they dress and talk and preach and all things, they can really get everybody all excited and all that. But it doesn't mean that everything's okay. There's good preachers that, that are right with God, that, that have a charismatic personality, and that's wonderful. I remember we talked about Whitfield, and Whitfield was that way. But just because somebody has a charismatic personality, they're handsome, they're pretty, they they know how to do things, just because they carry themselves that way and it looks good on the surface, doesn't necessarily mean that everything is okay behind closed doors. Amen? People look at these things, good looks and charismatic personalities, but God says that he looks at the heart. I think all of us are going to be surprised. Remember I said this, I think all of us, including myself, are going to be surprised at the people that are not in heaven we thought were going to be and those that are in heaven that we were like, how'd you get here? I think all of us, all of us are going to be surprised about that. You know why? Because God looks at the heart. And there's people that seem so good. They go to church. They, they, 
they look so good and they know the lingo and they know how to act, but their heart is far from God. They're not right. And they're not going to be in heaven. There's other people that are struggling, man, and, and they've got their issues, but their heart's right. You know, and the Lord looks at the heart. All right. People, let me give you this last one. People only want what they're used to. Anything that's different, they will assume it's wrong or evil just because it's different. Now, how goofy is that? But a lot of people do that. The denomination that they grew up in, what they're comfortable with, whether it's a race issue, whether it's something else, but they're comfortable with something. They're comfortable around a certain group of people. And all of a sudden, they get around something that's different. And just because it's different than what they're used to, they think it's wrong and evil. That's not true discernment. Am I telling you the truth? I remember whenever I got around revival for the first time, I'd grown up around Pentecost, but I didn't grow up around the charismatic stuff. And so to be honest with you, I I didn't grow up around, spiritually speaking, like dancing. There was a lot of things I was not familiar with. So whenever I got around revival and I started seeing people dance, it was new to me. But I wasn't so goofy about it that I thought, well, it must not be God because I've never. No, I knew it was God. The thing was, when I when I got saved and I, and it was real, it was in '95 when I it was really, I separated myself from so much, relocated, and I was just pursuing the Lord. I wasn't pursuing, um, trying to get politics in a denomination, shaking the right hands, playing the games to get up the corporate ladder or whatever. There were people that did that around me. I wasn't into that. I wasn't into all the things that people were into. I was just trying to find the Lord in all this. And and I got touched so powerfully in revival, and I knew that he was there. But, you know, some people come in, and they've never been around maybe banners. They've never been around somebody falling on the ground. They've never been around laughing. That was another thing that was new to me was the laughing. Like, what in the world? You know, all these people are laughing. It's like Brother Rodney. He's not even trying to be funny. I'm going to tell you something. The, the people that that I grew up around, and then whenever I got into ministry, I was very young. I'm going to give my testimony another time. But the, the leaders that I was around, mainline denominational pastors, they, they were somewhat rejecting toward me, and I'm thankful for it now. Because if I had connected with them, they would have molded me into their image. And I would have, and listen, they were anti-revival. They were Pentecostal. They spoke in tongues, but they were anti-revival. They did not. They did not think what was going on through people at Rodney Howard Brown in Toronto. They did not think that was God. They they didn't like what was going on in Brownsville. They thought it was a bunch of fanaticism. But thankfully, they were kind of rejecting toward me, and I didn't know why. It hurt me at the time, but I'm thankful now. I believe 100% God was protecting me, because they would have they would have really anyway they would have led me astray. But here's what God did. I was I was pursuing the Lord. I wasn't pursuing a lot of other things. And I was I was seeking God in prayer. And that whole rejection thing had gotten me by myself with the Lord. And you know what God did? He brought me these two elderly ladies in a church that were intercessors. Now they knew how to pray. And they they knew how they knew the Holy Spirit. They knew how to to um, hear him. And they knew how to pray what he was telling them to pray. And they knew how to communicate with the Lord. And they knew how to stay in touch with heaven. 
And even though they were in these churches that were rejecting of revival, they knew him. They knew the Lord. And so they were the ones taking me to the revivals. And here I was on staff and stuff, but I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be in prayer. I wanted to be where God was moving. And so that was my life at the time. And I remember one of them's name was Addie, and she drove me. Uh, she's an elderly woman in her 70s. She drove me to a Rodney Howard Brown meeting. I was like 19 years old, you know. And I had never been anything like it in my life. Oh, you'll like it. You know, let's go. So we drove down there, and, and we got there. And I mean to tell you, this was in the 90s. This was probably 96, 97 maybe. And um, she drove me down there, and it was in Fort Worth. It was at Calvary Cathedral, and they were in their old location. I mean to tell you, the time that our vehicle got on their property, the power of God was already hitting me, and I couldn't believe the level of the power of God that was on that place. I couldn't believe it. I went in there and it was just like, it was so intense in that atmosphere. And Brother Rodney, bless his heart, he's not trying to be funny or nothing, man. He's trying to preach the word, just walking up there like this, preaching the word. And I mean, people are falling over, laughing hysterically, and the power of God's going everywhere. But see, I'd never been around that. I'd never been around the laughing. I'd never been around any of that, so it was new to me. But I wasn't so goofy about it that I sat back and criticized it. I knew it was God. And I knew if God's in it, I want it. It's just a different manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but I'm hungry for whatever God wants to do. And thank God that I was allowed to be around these these elderly women that knew God and taught me how to know God, taught me how to pray, and took me to these things and basically told me, Scott, this is God. Just, you know, get past your any prejudice or anything you have against it, just enter in, it's God. Thank God that he brought me those people. Amen? Where would my life be if I'd listened to the goofy people that didn't know revival from a hole in the ground and tried to turn me against it and and didn't think it was God? Be careful who you're following because not everybody knows where they're going. Think about it. The preacher in the suit didn't know revival if it slapped him in the face. But some older lady who's an intercessor, nobody in the church that they really didn't even respect, to be honest with you, like they should have, knew God. Isn't that ironic? Think about that for a minute. Somebody that would go up there by themselves when nobody was around and would pray and pray and pray, and probably the reason why the Holy Spirit moved it all in the church, just to be honest, was probably their intercession only. And they didn't really have any honor, dignity, respect, or anything as intercessors. But yet they were the ones that knew God. You've got to have some discernment and know what's God and what is not God. So how do you build up your inner man? You've got to develop a prayer life. I'm going to get into that in the next series I'm doing. Praying in tongues. How many of you guys drive in your car very far sometimes? Pray in the Spirit. Let me tell you what changed my life was whenever I get in my car and go places, just praying in the Spirit. I used to drive quite a ways to work and I'd pray in the spirit made it a goal I'm going to pray in the spirit you're building up your inner man you're building up your inner man I'm telling you it develops discernment in you spend time in God's presence you guys are really great about that I've talked a lot about it but you know some people get hit by the power and bounce right back up man soak in the Lord let the Lord just saturate you and fill you we're not in a big hurry what's the big hurry what's the big rush it's like God touches you okay thanks jump up and I got to go do something I got to go somewhere I think the American culture is developed like, you know, like a little child has the attention span of a squirrel, like we joke about. It's like people are like that. They, they, 
got this short attention span. Meditating on God's word and, of course, church attendance. But I want to encourage you. Let's pray tonight and seek God. Listen, this is it. I want to pray here in a moment. So, Berzak, if you can get some worship ready, maybe that number five. I want you all to hear me. How many of you guys desperately, truly want a move of God for real? Like the real deal, you're desperate for something. And the only way that we're going to have it, all of us, and I'm talking about me, number one, I've got to be the first one that we've got to humble ourselves down and say, Lord, burn out of me whatever's got to go. Help me to die to this stinking flesh. I want to be dead and crucified with Christ. It's not I who who live any longer, but it's Jesus living through me. We've got to get that. There's been prophecies like the Azusa Street Revival saying, look, it's going to happen in 100 years. How many of you guys want to see that? I mean, okay, the prophet said that it would happen in 100 years. It's 100 years, so it's time. If, If not us, then who? Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen just here because the prophet said it would happen all over. But I'm just saying, why can't we press in for it also? There's going to be other people to happen to. I'm hungry to see it. But I know that God's not going to let the flesh see it. He's going to have to crucify us. How many people are willing to die to the flesh? It's not about me anymore. I'm going to tell you, that's, that's why you guys will see it. Once you get crucified with Christ pretty good and you see people out there in the flesh, you'll be like, that's the flesh. You'll see it in church. Somebody's over there whining about something. They want it my way now and all this. We've got to get past all that. Who cares, man? You know, I just want him to come. I want his presence here. I want him to do what he wants to do. My heroes of the faith are people that maybe nobody ever knew, but they were martyrs. You know, they were out on a mission field somewhere and nobody even knew who they were. They won people to Christ in secret and they died. Those are the real heroes. It's not the people that are up in fancy suits and yelling and screaming and get a lot of money necessarily. If that's what they're called to do, then they're heroes in their own right. But I'm saying my heroes are those that didn't get the appraise here. They got it there. We've got to live for that applaud there. You need to live for Jesus' applause, not the applause of men. Amen? Brother Zach, let's kill recordings, play something. Let's find a place, guys. Get on, let's get on our face tonight and just seek him. Lord, I want to die to the flesh, none of me. I want all that flesh to be burned out. Send your fire.